God first in everything that we do. We are one week into our 21 days of prayer, and I just want to encourage you to pray like God has already heard and answered your prayer. Pray with the fervency and the hope and the expectation that we serve a great God who wants to do great things in our lives. For all of you who are joining us in person and those that call New Freedom their home, I just want to share with you that you have been prayed for, that as your pastor, I love you. And and I don't think we can hear it enough for someone to tell us that I love you. You are loved. You just need to look at your neighbor and say, you're loved because God loves you. And I know everybody can't tell their neighbor that you love them today, but you you can tell them God loves you today. But truly, as a disciple of Jesus, they will know, the world will know that we are his disciples, his followers, by the love that we have for one another. And if you're new around here, you're watching us, visiting us online, and uh, you don't have a connection to a faith family, you really are missing out. You could get connected to the greatest family on earth, the family of God, those people who call the name of Jesus with a clean hands and a pure heart that say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. And if you're looking for a church home, you don't need to look any further. You have found it. Let's make all of our guests welcome today with a hand clap. Let them know we thank them for being here. And there's multiple ways to get involved. There's a digital connect card right there online. There's also uh, ways in the lobby after service that you can connect. And we would love to know that you are here. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We are continuing on our theme of the year, the year of the good news. Everybody say that, good news. The year of the good news. There is only one good news. We call it the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And these four writings, first century writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are uh, somewhat like biographies. They're kind of like history. They're also like narratives. Uh, they are they're actual eyewitness accounts. So exciting about the greatest person who ever lived. It is about the life, the works, the ministry the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we want to use this entire year to really see what these books say to us. I told you last week, I'm going to be taking about three months for each of these books. And we're starting in the book of Mark as we started last week. And where we left off last week was with the calling that Jesus gave to four of his disciples. First, he called Peter and then Andrew, Peter's brother. And then he called James and John. And so we see these two sets of brothers being called into the ministry, being not even just invited into a commission, but actually uh, th- this was a, an ushering into a brand new way of life, a change from the inside out that these four men were about to embark on. And we see later on that Jesus will call some more disciples. And we're, we're going to finish up with Mark chapter 1 today. But just as a form of recap, we saw Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan last week. We see that there were four of these disciples who followed Jesus. And, and at the very end of the message, if you missed it, you need to go back. And you can, you can skip the whole message if you want. Just go to the very end and hear what I said about Andrew. Because Andrew was likely the first one to be called into the service of Jesus. And yet, when you read on through the Gospels, you find that Peter, James, and John were in the close inner circle with Jesus. They were like the the confidants. They were in the know. They were the the groupies. They were the clique. They were the inside ballgame guys with Jesus. But Andrew was left out of that mix. 
And I think that there are a lot of Andrews in life today. There are a lot of people who feel as though they're on the outside looking in, that they're not invited to everything that others are invited to, that they're missing out somehow on the fun that everybody else is having, that if, if they didn't uh, get in the in crowd and early on and, and they're going to miss out on something and they don't have the right path. But what you need to observe about Andrew was that he was faithful even though he didn't seem to have the greatest position. Even though he didn't have the greatest recognition or the nameplate, Andrew was still faithful to the calling that God put upon his life. And I would that this year, 2022, would be a year of faithfulness, a year of devotion, that whether or not we're in the in crowd, whether or not we get invited, listen, you don't always need to be invited to everything. Sometimes the reason you didn't get the invite was that God was blocking you from something you didn't need to be part of anyway. God was setting up a situation so that you would be excluded because he knew what kind of trouble would ensue. If you had been there, you would have been in trouble too. And we need to thank God many times for the things that we don't see with our natural eye because the spirit tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are faithful people walking by faith, recognizing that God is doing a work in and through us greater than what we can see with our natural eyes and sometimes more uh, uh, consequential than what others are giving adherence and credit to. So that's where we left off last week. We see these four apostles, disciples of Jesus and Jesus. These five men over the next few verses are going to encounter some things that in a normal day for any of us would be enough probably in a decade, but these guys all encounter them in about a day to two or three days, just five of them. We don't even have the whole 12 yet. We only have five. So let's dig in and see Mark chapter one, verse 21. It says, then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, everybody say Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So there was a a regular council of religious people in Jesus' day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. These were the religious elite. They were the ones that you would look to on the Sabbath or on the the time of going to the, the temple. You would look to these to teach you. But Jesus now came and on the Sabbath, he observed Sabbath. He practice this routine, this rhythm. We're going to get into that a little more next week. We just introduce it here, but you're going to see that in Jesus' own life, there was this routine practicing of Sabbath. What is Sabbath? Sabbath means rest. It is rest. Uh, If you go all the way back to Genesis, you see that in six days of creation, God created the heavens and the earth, everything in them. And he said, it is good. And on the seventh day, what did God do? He Sabbathed. He rested. In your system and my system, our bodies, our internal uh, organization of our internal clock is set up that every seventh day, your body desires a rest. There was a book written not uh, not long ago, several years ago. It's called The Body Keeps Score. And what that means is when you look at it, all the stressors, all the pressures, all the tense things that happen in our lives, we keep plowing on through. We never take a day off. American uh, Idol is work. American Idol isn't necessarily money or fame or success. The idol of America is workism, workaholicism, always working, always achieving, always doing something else. We can seldom ever stop and take a break, breathe it in and rest. Listen, I've done a lot of funerals in my time of 15 years pastoring this local body. And even before I was a pastor, I was doing funerals and I have yet to stand at the bedside of a person very accomplished and get to the end of their days. And they say, you know, pastor, I wish I had just worked a few more days. I wish I had just put in some more overtime. I wish I had just spent a little more time at the office. No, nobody ever says that. 
Our greatest commodity is T-I-M-E. It's not M-O-N-E-Y, it's T-I-M-E. And here's what we do. We exchange our time for money. And we exchange our money for things. And if we can get into this routine and this, this habit, Jesus did it, he practiced it, this Sabbath rest. It was his custom on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday for him. For us, New Testament believers, we attend church on Sunday, the first day of the week. It was the day of resurrection. There's reasons why we do that. And so I'm not going to be a stickler on when your Sabbath is. Maybe your Sabbath is Monday. My Sabbath happens many times in the week to be a Friday. That's a day that I can get a little bit of work done in the morning and I can, I can take off in the evening, in the afternoon, and I can just kind of rest. But your routine is different than my routine and your neighbor's routine is different than yours. As long as you are giving yourself a regular time of resting before the Lord, of doing things that you enjoy, of soaking yourself into the immersion of what God is doing in your life and reflecting on that experience. This was his custom. And as Jesus taught, he had authority, not like the religious leaders of his day. He's, they said, there's something different about the way that he expounds the word of God. And the reason we know why is we're looking back. He was and is the word of God. The word of God was teaching them the word of God. He was revealing to them. And every time Jesus taught, their eyes were open like they had never seen it before. And verse 23 says, now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, let us alone. Us, as this said, there was a man. Well, this man wasn't alone because he was demon possessed. And it says, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So as Jesus is going into the synagogue, here, here's what's fascinating to me. You, you can't just read the Bible. You got to read the Bible. The Bible said that in the church house, there was a demon possessed man. And all the preachers said, things ain't changed a whole lot in 2000 years. Come on, you're supposed to laugh about that. People have this notion that they've tried the bars for dates. They've tried online searches. I'll go to church for a date. Be careful going to church for a date. You might find a demon possessed person at church. That's what the Bible says. And this demon-possessed man cried out and said, we know who you are. You are Jesus of Nazareth. Why have you come here to trouble us? You are the Holy One of God. This is fascinating. The demons recognized at the very onset of Jesus' ministry who he was. They knew his authority. They recognized that they had no stance or position over Jesus' authority. There's nothing that they could do to mess up the church service. There's nothing they could do to infect other people. But Jesus had all of the authority. Let's see what he does with this. Verse 25. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet. Now that's nice, New King James. What he said was, shut up. <laughs> Jesus rebuked him. You ever been rebuked? Like that's not a word we use a lot today, but that's a Bible word. Rebuked is a strong, stern instruction. Jesus told this guy, shut up. But he wasn't talking to the man. He was talking to the demon and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Now, this is Bible. We don't talk like this in the 21st century very much. We have put aside miracles. We are too smart for this. We're too intellectual. 
We don't do things like this in modern society. We can now counsel out demons. We can send you to every psychiatrist. We can do all of the medically prescribed things. Listen, I'm not against counselors. I have one myself. I go to a counselor. You should too. Everybody needs someone to reflect. Everybody needs someone to bounce their ideas off of because everything you think isn't everything you should be thinking about. And in this text, we see this demon speaking up in a church service. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I'm reading now. This is a patroner. I want to know what is going to happen next. Jesus rebuked him. The spirit convulsed the man. I'm sure that this wasn't a pleasant scene. He cried out with a loud voice, and look what had happened. And he came out of him. Then they were all amazed. Wouldn't you be amazed if you saw that happen in church? So they all questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority, he commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread all throughout the region. So Jesus is now teaching with this great authority, and they, uh, they surmise, they think that he now has some new doctrine some new teaching. Why did they think that the word of God, why did they think that Jesus, the Messiah, why did the the spectators, the bystanders, the regular Sabbath attending people think that he had some new doctrine? He knew the, the Jewish scriptures. Jesus was Jewish. Okay. Jesus, you got this picture in your mind. Many times you see Jesus and it's a blue eyed, blonde hair, fair skinned Jesus. That's not Jesus. That's the picture somebody put up of Jesus on, on him though. On a, on, a, on a church wall, Jesus would have been olive skin. Jesus was Jewish, probably dark hair, probably not looking like the visage that we think of Jesus. But why were they thinking that he had some new teaching? He was called teacher rabbi. The reason why is that he did things and operated differently than their expectation. And many times our greatest source of disappointment is in our own elevated expectations. We expect something to happen this way and it happens that way and we get disappointed. And these people thought he has a new teaching because this isn't how we've seen demons come out before. If you go back and you look at first century um, Palestine this time, you'll see that there was a man named Josephus. He was a Jewish historian and he has some of the, the most extensive writings that we have of the first century. You can really parallel so many of the Bible accounts with Josephus historian accounts and they line up exactly. And that's how we've been able to validate so much of the word of God as being accurate is through a Jewish historian named Josephus was not a Christ follower yet. He attributed many of these things, but during his writings, there was a man named uh, Eleazar. Eleazar was a Jewish exorcist that would make travelings all around the area and he would supposedly exercise demons. You can read all about this in Josephus. And the way that he would do it is he would, he would make a little ring of herbs and spices. He would twist it together. And this was common of any exorcist of this day. And he would place it underneath the nose of the person who was demon possessed. And it would cause them to sneeze. Many uh, attribute the, the, the whole connotation of saying bless you when you sneeze to this account. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. You take it for what you want. But when he would sneeze, when a person would sneeze, obviously you put spices and oils and things on a ring of herbs, it's going to cause you to sneeze. And he would tell them that 
When the person sneezed, the demon was being exercised out of their sneeze through their nose, and he would say, come out in the name of Solomon, Solomon the the Great, the great Solomon's temple. And so this was the way that they had always seen exorcisms before. Now Jesus comes on the scene, this demon speaks out and identifies who he is, and instead of getting the ring of herbs and spices, all Jesus simply does is say, shut up and come out. And the man convulsed. He didn't sneeze, but the demon came out. And they were amazed. They were shocked. Jesus upset the norms of the day and did things completely different. Listen, when you start to have a true blue relationship with Jesus, things will look different. Things will get changed in your life. The furniture of your heart will get so rearranged that people who you used to run with will no longer be interested in running with you. And you need to say, thanks be to God for the glory that he has done in my life. That's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that you leave those people in the dust. That doesn't mean you leave those people behind. Those people need to see the changed life of you, uh, that, that you're walking in because you have a light to shine upon their path. Jesus did things differently than the common exorcist. And here's what you need to know about Jesus is that he never bantered with and exercised and gruelingly tried to cast out demons. He just rebuked them and cast them out. Now look what it says here in verse 28. It says, and immediately... His fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. And when Jesus' fame spread, there was a turning point in his ministry. There was something that was different the next morning when he woke up than when he went to bed on that night after coming into the temple the first time and casting out that demon. If you've not seen it yet, we we took a, a... time this weekend and we watched American Underdog. It's a, it's a wonderful story, a football story about Kurt Warner and, and he's a believer in Jesus and how that he defied all the odds, the greatest undrafted player ever in football. And, and we watched that story. And, and here's what really stood out to me is that when someone who has walked the path of normalcy, and, and I would say that, that all of us have been in a place where we just feel normal. We, we don't feel like we're famous. We don't feel like we're known. We're, we're kind of normal. And what happens is when there is a level of fame, when there is some kind of glimmer of success, that in and of itself does not change a person. When Jesus went to bed this night, he was still the same Jesus who was baptized a couple days sooner earlier in the Jordan as he was the one casting out the demons. But when he woke up the next day, the fame about him had spread And now something was a buzz in the atmosphere. Something was changing in the way people were talking about and referencing him. And now everybody wanted attention of Jesus. They wanted an audience with him. They wanted to talk with him. Now all of a sudden he is a, a professional teacher. He is someone who is now on the circuit. And so when we as humans, when we experience success, we are not necessarily changed that day, but what happens over time is when we start believing the press that is said about us, when we start believing the accolades, when we start looking forward to the pats on the back, we start to change because success and fame has a tendency to go to our head. Like Scott said a while ago in prayer that, that pride starts to fill our ego. And now we really have arrived. We think we're somebody. But Jesus had a whole other way of dealing with fame and with success. 
If you look at biographies of, of great people, uh, the one I just referenced a minute ago, Kurt Warner, it's amazing that, that some people can achieve great levels of success and yet not let the fame go to their head because they remember where they came from. They remember when they used to be down and out. They remember what it's like to be unnoticed, unrecognized, and at the back of the bus. And I think it's important for every follower of Jesus to never forget what it was like when you had the weight and the burden of sin on your shoulders. Never ever forget what it felt like to be a bondage and a slave to sin. Because if you can keep that in your mind, then you will look through eyes of compassion for every person who is still a slave and bound by sin. And it causes you with compassion. It causes you with holy boldness and desire to reach out to them with a word of hope, with a word of encouragement, with some kind of of acknowledgement that you know where they are. Why? Because you've been there yourself. And so here's how Jesus dealt with fame. Now in the morning, so the fame spread all throughout that day, all throughout that night. Verse 35, it says, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, Jesus was a morning person. Somebody say, Jesus was a morning person. (laughs) Having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. What'd he do? And there he prayed. And there he prayed. Having risen a long time before daylight, he went out to a solitary place and there Jesus prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. He, Jesus was so well concealed in his place and time of prayer, the disciples couldn't find him. They were wondering what happened to Jesus. He was just there last night. He laid down right there to sleep. We wake up in the morning. Everybody's looking for Jesus. Where is he at? When they found him, they said, everybody's looking for you. Like, Jesus, don't you realize you're famous now? Everybody wants your attention. You can go to the book signing and then there's a TV deal the next day. We can do this, Jesus. We can be famous. Everybody's looking for you. Here's how Jesus dealt with fame. He kept to his routine, rising up early, going to a place and praying. And when they found him, they said this, but verse 38 says, but he said to them, let's go on and be famous, guys. Let's write that book. Let's get on that television. Let's get be on the magazine cover. No, Jesus said, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose, I have come forth. There was a centralized purpose that Jesus was convinced and convicted of that he was not going to be derailed or detracted. He was not going to be unfocused. He was going to stay with his purpose. Verse 39 says, and he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. He went right back to doing what the father had already instructed him to do. He went right back to doing what he had been doing before that was yielding results for the kingdom. The third and fourth century desert mothers and fathers, these are monks in the, in the third and fourth century. We, we have been greatly shaped by their writings in the, in the Christian community today. Many of their devotionals we still read today. But those early followers of Jesus had such deep relationship with the Father that they said in order to stay connected to God in a personal and real way, there are three things that we personally keep in our own lives. Number one, we stay away from hurry. 
We stay away, number two, from crowds. And number three, we stay away from noise. They didn't hurry. They didn't go into crowds. And they stayed away from noise. That is almost the exact opposite of culture in America 2022. Can I get an amen? We hurry from place to place, from thing to thing. We crash at night in our beds and say, oh, that was a busy day. Just knowing that it's all going to start again tomorrow. The clock's going to start again. And we love the crowds. You know, one of the biggest laments of pastors from 2020 was that the crowds all left and we had to speak to cameras. I hear it all the time. The crowds are gone. The crowds haven't come back. What about the crowds? Jesus, our model, Jesus, our example, Jesus, our Lord, he never went after the crowds. He never sought a great crowd. He only was interested in one audience, and it was an audience of one. It was the audience of his father, and he went to a solitary place. He withdrew himself early in the morning, and he, there he prayed and prayed and prayed some more and gave his heart to God. Now, we could do a whole teaching on prayer, but let me just say this about prayer. Prayer is simply fellowship and communication with God. Prayer is not talking all the time. Some of the most rewarding times of prayer that I have in my Christian experience is in solitude and quiet. Because if you're doing all the talking, then God is silent. But if you and I will be silent, then all of a sudden we'll recognize God will start talking. If you just keep a note tablet next to your prayer time, your prayer place, your solitary place, somewhere where you go for prayer, then you can sketch out something when God puts it on your heart. You can also write that little reminder. See, this is what happens to me in prayer. If I just be real, we're real people experiencing real freedom, right? So the, the, the preacher can tell you the honest confession. When I get into prayer, usually what will come to the top of my mind first is the to-do list of the things that I didn't do yesterday that are pounding on my door today. And if I don't have a note tablet to write that down, I'll be so fixated on that that I won't be able to really satisfy the time of prayer because all I'm thinking about is my to-do. Just write it down and you can check it off later. The other thing that really tempts me in my prayer time is I wonder, is there a breaking news story on that news app? Surely there's something that happened in the last 13 minutes in the world that I need to know about. I wonder if anybody liked my latest story on social media. I better go check and see who liked that. See, that's how your human mind will work. It'll keep you out of times of prayer. It'll make you hurry. It'll get you into the crowded area spaces and you will be inundated with noise. That's not what the church fathers did. As one commentary said, we should not wait until we need help to seek Christ. Learn to pray when the sun shines and then you'll know how to pray when the storm comes. Every day, investing something into the spiritual bank account of your own walk with Jesus. Every day, deferring some amount of me to God, giving some reference and reverence of my heart to Jesus. Listen, the laws of the spirit so often parallel the laws of nature. There is no one in this room that can walk down the Lebanon Citizens Bank 
tomorrow, Tuesday, when they're open, and walk in there and say, yeah, I'd like to make a withdrawal. And they say, okay, can I have your account number? You say, I've never had an account here. I've never made a deposit. You know what they're going to tell you? You're in the wrong place. If you've never made a deposit, you can never make a withdrawal. If you've never made a spiritual deposit into your own life, what makes you think that you're going to have anything to pull out of your reservoir of the spirit when it comes time of tempting, of testing, of trial? Now, I'm not saying that God will turn a deaf ear to you. God hears our prayers. God hears the prayers of the unrighteous. He doesn't have to answer, but God hears and he knows. But we have to make the deposit. And here's how Jesus dealt with fame. He just withdrew. The miracles were just simply the evidence of what his true purpose was. Let's get on to this. Mark 16 and 15 says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized, there it is again, we see baptism, talked about it last week, water baptism, very important, and will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. Signs follow believers. Believers should not follow signs. We think if I can just get in the prayer meeting, if I can just go to the revival service, if I can just get to that concert, then I'll feel the presence of God. No, you're a believer. You don't follow signs. Signs follow you. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. This is a transition now to the next facet of Jesus' day. Miracles are great. Healing and deliverance is wonderful. It is a a center mark of Jesus' ministry. But hear me, miracles, healings, signs, and wonders are are great, but they're temporary. They're not long-term. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, here's what I mean by it. Every person that Jesus ever physically healed in the scripture eventually either contracted something else or they died of old age. They're not walking around here today. So they're temporary. It is simply a manifestation of the kingdom and glory of God coming to show us as a sign proof positive that God is present, that God is real, that God heals. So let's venture into this whole concept of healing in the next passage. Mark 1.40, it says, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, Kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken immediately, the leprosy left him and he was clean. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony of them. However, This man went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places. And they came to him from every direction. Jesus was not a very good secret service undercover operator, was he? Every time he did a miracle, his fame spread more and more. So we see in the first chapter of this gospel writing, this good news. We see this matter of deliverance of demons, but now we get into healing. And here's the question that often gets asked when we, when we go into passages like this, is it God's will to heal? Well, this man had the same question. He said, Jesus, 
If you're willing, you can, you're able to heal me. F.F. Bosworth, the great uh, revivalist, said it like this, faith cannot exist where the will of God is unknown. Faith can't exist where the will of God is not known. If you know the will of God on a matter, then you can have confidence and boldness that, yeah, I can, I can tread in those waters. I can go down that path. This man didn't ask Jesus in a sense of saying, if you're able It wasn't a matter of Jesus' ability. He had full faith, apparently, in Jesus' ability. He asked if he was willing. Do you want to? And Jesus said, I do want to. I am willing to heal you. Now, the question, is it God's will to heal, then quickly goes over to, okay, if I know the will of God is that he wants to heal, the the ministry of Jesus is a healing ministry, Then the question is, okay, pastor, does everybody get healed? Have you ever wondered that? Is everybody supposed to get healed? Is it God's will? Does everybody get healed? Well, this is like browsing in a jewelry store. You ever gone into a jewelry store and you realize that there are a lot of facets to that store. There are a lot of counters. There are a lot of of pieces of jewelry. And if you take something that is one of the most famous in a jewelry store, like a diamond, and you lift up that diamond, you look at it and it's beautifully cut. But if you turn it just a little bit, you can see a whole nother aspect of that stone. And healing is much the same way. It's a complicated answer, but it's not unknowable information. We can know what the word of God says about it. So over the next couple of chapters, you'll have to come back the next few weeks, we're gonna see different facets, almost like turning that diamond to see different aspects of how healing in the New Testament took place and how healing still can take place in our own lives. In this case, this man was healed and it was Jesus' will to heal him. And I can tell you with confidence, with backup and scriptural support in the word of God, that God wants to heal everyone and that everyone will be healed in the name of Jesus, those who are in Christ. Now, let me put a caveat there. Everyone will not be healed necessarily the way that I think or on my timetable. Because there are three ways or three avenues of healing that we see in the word of God, three promises of healing. The first one is an immediate instantaneous healing. And that's what most of us think about when we say, pray for so-and-so. We have a prayer chain here, one call. If you're not on it, you can get on it. We'll let you know when there's someone who is in need of prayer. And many times those are prayers of healing that we're sending out for. When we want an immediate response, like someone gets healed right away. Other times... And in, in, in the Bible, it tells us that there's healing that takes place over time. The, the, the man, Jesus, spin the mud, put it on his eyes, and he said, what do you see? And the man said, I see men walking like trees. Well, Jesus didn't stop there. He prayed for him again. He laid his hands on him again. He wiped it out, and he said, now I can see clearly. There was a process to his healing. It wasn't all instantaneous. And so there are times where by the treatment of medical that God has given information to the doctors, not against doctors, you should pray first, but then go to your doctor, get all the best advice that you can. God can heal through medicine. He can heal through time. And then there is the final and ultimate healing that when we stand face to face before Jesus, everything is put back together again. All things made right. 
in our resurrected bodies, we, as Job said, I will stand and in my flesh, I will see the glory of God. Jesus didn't simply want to make broken bodies well again for a limited time. He came so that we could be complete body, mind, and spirit, soul, and spirit, everything about us being put back together in the proper place, in the proper order. And that, my friends, will not happen completely on this earth. You can have levels of it, but there is coming a day and there is coming a time on that great getting up morning when we will stand before God, when the dead in Christ will rise and we will be with him and we will have a new body. We will have a resurrected body and we will be like him when we look into his face and then we will be healed. So does everybody get healed? They can. If they know Jesus, they can. This man was a leper. In leprosy, in the first century, was believed to be highly contagious. Now, we know today that it's not as contagious as they thought it was, but it is contagious. And leprosy is still real today. Leprosy is a skin disease. And it actually affects the, the sensitivity and the feeling of your nerve endings. Leprosy also makes spots and you can, in, in very extreme cases, you can lose appendages and your skin can crumble. And so leprosy was something that you did not want to contract in the first century or any time. But did you know that today in the world, there are still about 200,000 people every year that contract leprosy? In the United States of America, there's about 200 cases of leprosy that get contracted every single year. And even in our country today, there are is still an active leper colony. Kala Tapa, Hawaii has the nation's oldest leper colony that was in, in play from 1866 to 1969. It shut down in 1969. And there are still 12 lepers there that even after the colony was closed up, chose to stay right there in that place and to live out their days as lepers. Now, there's a, a story about a missionary named Joseph Damien. You can look him up. And in the 18th century, he would minister in these leper colonies in Hawaii. And Father Damien would go week after week to the place where nobody else wanted to go. And he would minister to these lepers. And he would say this statement every morning. He would say, my fellow believers. And then he would go on and give his message. He himself, not being a leper, had compassion on them for their plight. But then the day came when he was making some boiling water and some of it went down onto his foot and he knew that he spilt water, but he didn't feel anything. And he looked down and there was water on his foot, but he felt no pain. And so he spilled some more water on his foot and realized there was no nerve endings that were firing in his feet. Apparently, he too had contracted leprosy. And he did. Ministering in close proximity to people who were infected, he contracted leprosy. It's recorded of Father Damien that the very next Sunday, when he goes before the congregation of lepers, instead of saying, greeting my fellow believers, here's how he said, greetings, my fellow lepers. In other words, he's saying, I am one of you. What in the world would make a God creator of heaven and earth come in the form of a little babe 
born in a manger, grow up, be baptized in water, crucified, buried, and on the third day rose again. Here's the reason. Because Jesus is saying to each and every one of us, I am just like you. I know your pain. I know your suffering. I know your temptation. I know what you're going through. I can sympathize with your infirm feelings. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I know the place of rest. I am the place of rest, is what Jesus says. And Jesus had compassion on this leper because he wanted a better life for this man. And Jesus wants a better life for each and every one of us. In fact, Jesus wants the best life for us. He wants us to enjoy the kingdom life. It is the best life. It is a life of joy, peace, and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. It is the, 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 the life of knowing that, yes, troubles still come, but I have a place for my troubles to go. I have a place to take all of my burdens and my cares. It says that as Jesus healed this leper, he told him something. He said, make sure that you go and offer to the priest the offering for healing that was subscribed by the law of Moses. Jesus was perfectly keeping the law, making sure that he didn't get in trouble with the authorities of the day because his time hadn't come yet to be betrayed. What did this guy do? Okay, Jesus, I'll do exactly like you say. And then he goes and he blabs to everybody about his healing. And you see Jesus going, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. You're gonna cause me to have to retreat and go from town to town and go into hiding. And I, you can't really blame this guy. He was just excited about the healing that he had received, right? Wouldn't you be excited if you were healed like this? I would. And he went and he told all about it. And it, it kind of falls into that category about no good deed goes unpunished, right? <laughs> Jesus does a good deed. The guy tells all about it. Now Jesus has to go into hiding. But sometimes this is life. The people who you do the most for, respect it the least. Sometimes you experience that. Those who you really reach out for, those who you really sacrifice for, don't even appreciate it in the moment. Someday they might. Some of you parents are wondering that about your kids right now. <laughs> Someday they might. But Jesus knew that too. And so this man went out and told it all, ever what had happened. And I'll close with this. Regardless of how someone responds to your kindness, regardless of how someone responds to your compassion, don't ever allow it to stop you from being the kingdom man or woman that God has called you to be. You need to keep planting. You need to keep sowing. You need to keep watering because you never know when the increase will come. Some plant, some water, but who gives the increase? God gives the increase. So never stop. Keep on going. Keep doing it. And here's what we see at the end of this first chapter is from this wilderness that began now all the way through he had 40 days in the wilderness, his ministry. Jesus is only a, maybe a week or two into his ministry. And all of a sudden, he is driven back into a figurative wilderness and a very real hiding. The Christian life, if you read the, if you read the Gospels, the Christian life is a recurring motif of wilderness. Those first 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness was certainly not going to be the last time he was in the wilderness. 
And American Christianity for the last hundred years has missed this because we have been focused on Christian prosperity, not on Christian suffering. We have been focused on this is the best life we're ever going to have, so let's just live it up now, and God wants us all blessed. And I don't disagree that God wants you blessed, but can I tell you that there will be trials, there will be trouble? I would just be quoting Jesus if I said to you these words, in this world, you will have trouble. Does that sound familiar? If you read the Bible, you'll know that's what Jesus said to his own disciples, the ones who were faithful, ones who followed him. Wait, Jesus, we didn't sign up for trouble. We didn't sign up for trials. I signed up for the blessed life. What are you talking about? He said, no, in this world, you will have trouble. And I'm so glad he didn't stop there. Let's continue. He said, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. In your times of trial, in your times of trouble, you don't have to despair. I know our default nature is that we despair. We're like chicken little, the sky is falling. We're like the little story of the guy, nothing ever went right. He said, nobody likes me. Pastor, everybody hates me. And I said, what do you wanna do? He says, I think I'll go eat worms. You all are sleeping today or something. Come on, you've heard that before. Help me out. See, if you amen, I'll get done a lot sooner. If not, I just think, (laughs) they're not getting it, Lord. I need to go to the next chapter. (laughs) We don't need to despair. We have hope. We have the good news. The world has all the other news, all the entertainment, all the media, all the scandal. We have the best news. Jesus has given us a conquering victorious spirit. And we can be of good cheer even in our times of trouble. Why? Because he has already overcome the world. He has already won the victory. And in his name, we are victorious too, with heads bowed and no one looking around. Maybe you're in a wilderness right now. Maybe you feel like you're in need of a healing and you know your body is racked with pain and you've prayed before and you want a healing from God. And you're wondering, does God even love me? Is it God's will for me to be healed? You just need to reach out today by faith and say, Lord, I'm receiving your word. I'm receiving your healing touch. And even if it doesn't happen the way I expected or the way I want it to happen, I'm gonna trust you for it today and tomorrow and the next day. And I'm going to see the goodness of God in my life. I'm gonna see the goodness of God and faithfulness in my life. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for touching your people. And right now you're moving up and down every aisle. You're moving through these screens and touching people online. Those listening on the podcast, you're touching them right now, even as they're driving in their car, they're working out on their exercise machine. You are touching people all around the world today because your good news is going out amongst your people in the kingdom of God. We are going to be of good cheer for you have overcome the world.